0: Hello and welcome to another edition of the UK Law Weekly Podcast with me, your host, Marcus Cleaver. This week we're going to be looking at the case of Letty Mackey and Cooper. The citation for this case is 2020 UKSC 33. And this case that we're looking at this week has its origins in one of the biggest divorce settlements that we have seen in recent years. Sir Christopher Hone and Jamie Cooper got married back in 1995, just as he was beginning his career in the world of finance soon became apparent that he was extremely successful in this area, and made millions of pounds. By the time the couple were getting divorced back in 2012, there was an open question about the extent of the family's wealth. While Hone claimed that the assets were worth only 64.3 million pounds, his estranged wife Cooper argued that they were in fact worth a stonking 890 million pounds. In the end, the court's view was much closer to the wife since she ended up with an award of £337 million. However, this isn't a family law case, and what we are talking about today has much more to do with the family's charitable contributions. The couple were two of the foremost philanthropists in the country, and when they were together they set up the Children's Investment Fund Foundation, which is a charitable company that seeks to help children in developing countries questions arose about how the charity should be governed and run in the wake of the divorce. It was agreed that Cooper would resign as a member and a trustee, but that the charity would make a grant of around £275 million to Big Win Philanthropy, which was the name of a new charity set up by Cooper. When a grant is made in consequence of a director quitting their office, the legal starting point is section 217 of the Companies Act 2006, which requires the grant to be approved by members of the company. However, because of the charitable context of this grant, section 201 of the Charities Act 2011 is triggered, and this means that the grant will be ineffective without the written consent of the charity commission. The commission permitted the Children's Investment Fund Foundation to get the approval of the court, and so proceedings were started in the charity's name, and the trustees surrendered their discretion to the court. As far as section 217 of the Companies Act went, the members of the company were Hone, Cooper, and one Dr Letimaki. But when it came to voting on the grant, Letimaki was obviously the only person who did not have a conflict of interest, and therefore essentially became the sole decision maker. Unfortunately, throughout the entirety of the proceedings, Letimaki never stated which way he was going to vote, However, in a somewhat surprising twist, the High Court took that decision out of his hands when it was held that the grant was in the best interests of the foundation and the judge exercised the discretion of the trustees by approving the grant. Although Letimaki was nominally still undecided, he did not feel that this judgement obliged him to vote in favour of the grant, but on this point the judge held firm and noted that Letimaki was a fiduciary and that voting against the grant would be a breach of fiduciary duty. As such, the court made an order that required Letimaki to vote in favour of the grant. This was appealed in the Court of Appeal, and the judges there held that while Letimaki was indeed a fiduciary, he had not threatened to act against his fiduciary duty, only claiming that he would act in a fashion that promoted the charitable interests of the foundation. With that in mind, the order was just discharged. As we pick things up, Miss Cooper now appeals to the Supreme Court to have that order reinstated requiring Letimaki to vote in favour of approving the grant. For the Justices, there were three main questions that came up in these proceedings, and so we will discuss each of them in turn. The first was whether Letimaki actually even owed a fiduciary duty in the first place, but the answer was a pretty obvious yes. One point of interest was that we are talking about a charitable company here, rather than the more typical charitable trust, but the two are actually pretty analogous. Lady Arden noted that of course, in both cases, the sole objective is to apply funds towards some sort of charitable goal, and so the only real difference is that the charitable company is not exactly a trust in the traditional sense. However, a trust is not the only mechanism by which a person can become a fiduciary, as that relationship may also be established by contract. In this case, the contract is the constitution of the company and the fiduciary duty is supported by legislation. The second question was whether the court even has the power to make an order that would require Letimaki to vote in favour of the grant. At the core of these proceedings we have a fiduciary who is bound to act in the best interests of the charitable company, and a court judgement that has explicitly stated what those best interests are. So how do those two facts stack up against one another? Well, for the majority, a failure by a fiduciary to implement the decision of the court would represent a breach of fiduciary duty. It is true that under normal circumstances, a fiduciary is able to make up their own minds about what is in the best interests of a company, but that assumes that there are different conclusions that could be reasonably reached about any given question. Once a court has itself reached a decision about what the best interests are, There is only one conclusion, and the fiduciary is bound to follow it. Just before we move on, it is worth getting into Lady Arden's dissent on this point. Her starting point was that there is a strong public policy argument in favour of not intervening in the decisions made by fiduciaries, because it is important that people are not discouraged from taking on these roles. Furthermore, it is important that the decisions remain subjective, and the courts do not simply substitute in their own view. After all, Letimaki had not yet made up his mind, so it was not as if he was threatening to breach his fiduciary duty, which might have legitimately prompted the courts to step in. The final question was whether the court can direct a member of a charitable company to vote in the context of section 217 of the Companies Act 2006. If you remember, this is the provision that says that a payment by a company must be approved by its members. However, when a judge substitutes their own view, it is no longer really a free vote for the member. Lady Arden responds to this point by noting that while the courts will not normally intervene, the right to vote can be restricted by an order under the Companies Act where appropriate circumstances dictate. I think that this sort of decision warrants close scrutiny by ourselves, as close analysts of the legal system. A fundamental starting point has to be that any person should be allowed to act freely and logically it follows that this should apply to any natural person like you or I, as well as any legal person like a company. That goes for companies of any size or type, including the charitable company at the centre of this case. There will be times when this freedom has to be limited by the public law system in which we operate. A person cannot simply go out and steal, and companies are subject to all sorts of rules and regulations. Nevertheless, decisions should generally be unfettered, and the courts ought to only step in when it is absolutely necessary to do so. That brings us to this case. Was the Supreme Court right to step in and make a decision on behalf of the charitable company? Ultimately, the result will be a good one. The grant will be made, it fits in neatly with the divorce settlement between Cohn and Cooper, and a lot of good work will undoubtedly be done by both charitable organisations. However, we're not asking about that result. We're asking about the way that result was achieved. Forcing the hand of a fiduciary is a precarious step because it discourages people from acting in that role, especially if they think that a judge can swoop in at any time. A fiduciary does have to be responsible, but should also be able to act on their own conscience. If they fail to do this or act in a negligent fashion, then that is the time for legal action, but it is quite another thing for the courts to anticipate bad faith and to impose a decision ahead of time. If it was clear that Letimaki was going to act in an unconscionable way, then perhaps there is an argument to be made that the court should step in with an order, but it was made clear several times throughout these proceedings that he had still not made up his mind. Perhaps if the court hadn't stepped in, Letimaki would have decided against Cooper, and that would have led to more legal wranglings, but that is better than taking a shortcut and riding roughshod over a central tenet of company law. Well thank you very much for tuning into this podcast episode and thanks as ever to bensound.com who provide the music. I am working at the moment on a number of updates to the courses that I have available on Gumroad so just this morning I recorded a family law update and um, that will go on to the family law course and in the coming weeks I'll be working on updates for my courses on employment law and also for commercial law as well for the year 2020-2021. If you're interested in those courses, especially if you're an undergraduate student who is studying one of those modules this year, then this is definitely something that you should check out. It's really cheap. It's about the same price that you would pay for a revision guide, but you get a whole collection of videos that cover a range of topics that will come up on your module in courseworks as well as in exams. Um, If you want to check those out, that's uklawweekly.com forward slash videos, and you can see all of the choices there. I'll be back with another episode next week, but for now, bye!